Please join me in prayer for God to illumine our hearts and minds. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Our first scripture reading is Psalm 100. Listen to God's word for us. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that has made us and we're his. We're his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to John, chapter 4. As we'll discuss in this passage, Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she had just asked Jesus about the disagreement between her people, the Samaritans, and Jesus' people, the Jews, about the right place to worship God. The Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim, and the Jews worshipped on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Listen again to God's word for us. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am the one who is speaking to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, the preaching of your word, with the blessing of your spirit, grant that insofar as it is true, it shall be undergirded by your power and by your love. Grant that insofar as it is false, it shall be swiftly forgotten and do no harm. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture passages this morning raise some key questions for us around worship. First, where are we supposed to worship God? And second, what is worship in the first place? What are we even doing here this morning together when we could be sleeping in or watching golf? Why in the world are we assembled here in the flesh or in spirit across the airwaves to worship the Lord? Let's begin with these questions by digging into our passage from John. 
Now, in this moment, Jesus was on his way from Judea to Galilee, and he was passing through Samaria. And he'd stopped in the middle of the day, in the heat at noon, at a well that was dug millennia before by Jacob, and he encountered a Samaritan woman. Now, this encounter is most famously known for Jesus' declaration to the woman that, quote, everyone who drinks of the water in this well will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water I will give them will never be thirsty. The water I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. This imagery here of God as the provider of living water, it's got echoes in the Psalms that we've been studying this summer. In Psalm 63, it proclaims, O God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And similarly, in Psalm 42, it reads, As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? Now the imagery of slaked thirst is particularly poignant this weekend, and we can perhaps especially feel and appreciate this metaphor given the temperatures outside. And I promise I did not plan that. Each one of these psalms, though, goes on to talk about the joy of worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem. Joining in festival processions, singing songs, shouting praise to God, looking upon God's glory and power as manifest in the glory and majesty of the sanctuary of the temple. Now, we don't tend to shout too much in here, but we do sing praises We do have festival processions in Palm Sunday and candlelight services. We do catch glimpses of God's beauty and glory in the beauty and the glory of the architecture of this building, this sanctuary, the dimensions of which were even crafted to correspond to the dimensions of Solomon's temple as laid out in 1 Kings 6. This is a space, the expanse of which draws our minds to the reality and truth of God that is far beyond us. But the Samaritans and the Jews had a sharp disagreement over worship and where it should properly be taking place. As many of you probably recall, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. The Samaritans were descendants of northern tribes of Israel, conquered long ago by the Assyrians. And the Samaritans debated fiercely with the Jews over the proper place to worship God. And we can perhaps get a feel for the tension between their rival claims about where to worship God and who is the proper people of God if we consider historic divisions between Protestants and Catholics. That is a division that's grown less intense of late, but a mere generation or two back, it was still a great source of division and distrust. A mere century back, it was a clear line of hostility. And just a few centuries back, it was a division that brought outright warfare and mutual persecution, with each side claiming to be the truthful followers of God the truthful heirs of the apostolic witness. Similarly, Samaritans and Jews made rival claims to God and to who was the proper people of God and where was the right place to worship God. And in her conversation with Jesus, the Samaritan woman pressed this prime sore point between her people, the Samaritans, and Jesus' people, the Jews, noting in her conversation with him, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you Jewish people say the place the people must worship is in Jerusalem. 
where is it fitting to worship God? Where has God ordained as the prime meeting place of divine presence and humanity? Where are the gates and the courts of God that we're supposed to enter with praise and thanksgiving? Where are we supposed to worship the Lord with gladness, to enter God's presence with singing? Now, while neither the Samaritans nor the Jews thought God was contained or housed completely in the temple, they were wrestling over where God had chosen as that primary meeting place between the earthly and the divine, what spot God had set apart as holy, as the place for God's people to assemble, to worship, to pray, to study, to sacrifice, to celebrate, to sing, to bring offerings, to affirm and proclaim the life-giving covenant of steadfast love that God, the creator of the universe, had made with them. It's important to note here, though, as well, that at this point in history, as the Jewish people had settled throughout the ancient world, they had long since begun creating places aside from the temple to come together, to assemble, in order to pray and to study the Torah and the prophets. And they had done this because they were so far away from Jerusalem. And these places were, of course, the synagogues. And synagogue literally means a gathering place or an assembly. So while the temple remained the place of annual pilgrimage for festivals like Passover, the place of unmistakable presence of God and the assembly around God's goodness for the Jewish people, while that still remained true of Jerusalem, synagogues were places where you could still assemble to give thanks to God, to pray, to teach, and to learn about who God is, what God has done, and how to walk in God's ways in everyday life. These were places to worship when away from the temple. And the root word for worship in Greek, it literally means bow down. And our English word worship, it comes from an old English word that means value or significance, worth, worthiness. At root, worship is about a recognition and a response to something of value, something worthy of praise, something worthy of service, something to which you feel drawn to devote your time, your talents, your resources, something to which you feel drawn to serve, something to which you feel compelled to shout about, to praise, to sing about, to tell other people about simply because it's so wonderful, something you find pleasure in sharing with others and in joining in community and an assembly around. Worship is about something that you love. In his famous book, The City of God, uh, 4th and 5th century Bishop Epipho Augustine, he argues that we form communities around that which we love. He argued, quote, let's say that a people is an assembled multitude of rational creatures bound together by a common agreement as to the objects of their love. In this case, if we are to discover the character of any people, we only have to examine what that people loves. Now, Augustine was unleashing this definition of a people against the Romans, as well as empires and nations of which he knew, stating that the Romans and empires like them were driven by a love of self and an accompanying will to dominate over others in pursuit of that love. And Augustine's definition of a people as those who share a common sense of the objects of their love, it's a powerful one. It's a powerful way to discover the character of a people, a community, 
a nation. It highlights as well that worship is at root about love and about the types of communities that we form around that love. And whether those communities are a family, whether they're a nation, whether they're an institution, whether they're an organization, a group of friends, if you look for the common shared love that's binding them together, you will know who or what they worship, whether they realize it or not, as divine, as of utmost value. And although we often might think about worship in a narrowly verbal way, thinking about worship as simply something that you say, praiseworthy words that you say, or you might think about worship in a narrowly ritualistic way, it's just an event that we do together on Sunday mornings. In reality, worship is more deeply and pervasively about whom or what we love, especially when we're gathering together in assemblies with one another. And worship is our response to whom or what we believe to be of utmost value, what we love. And that response entails thoughts, it entails words, it entails deeds. What we do and what we leave undone, that response entails service and sacrifice, it entails feelings of exuberance and proclamations of praise, it entails attention and care. On some level, we all understand worship We all understand the people and the things to which we are most devoted, the ways that we have routine and ritual ways of expressing and being formed by those loves. About this. And again, that worship, it could be of family, it could be of work, it could be of recreation, it could be of power or pleasure or wealth or prestige. While any and all those things or people can be rightly loved in and under God as elements of God's good creation, they can and often are loved idolatrously as though they were God. We all kind of understand what worship is and the ways in which it veers off into idolatry. So it's a pressing question for each of us to ask who it is, whom it is, what it is that we love. For whom and for what does our soul thirst and long as a deer longs for flowing streams? Who or what is it that is important to you and to the communities of which you are a part? What do you see as like living water? It's a prime question for us as well to ask why anybody would see God as worthy of worship. Why would anyone see God in that role? Psalm 100 proclaims quite simply and quite boldly, we worship God because God made us and we are God's. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We worship God because the Lord is God. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. We worship God because God made us and cares for us because God is our creator and our Redeemer. But we should note that this affirmation from Psalm 100, it can sometimes feel abstract. It can feel like a theological claim that floats above and apart from everyday life. It can feel like something sometimes that we affirm together, not with gladness, not with joy, but almost out of habit. And to those who have left or have never joined the church, 
those affirmations can look at best like wishful thinking. And it's true that affirming God as good, as our creator, as our redeemer, it entails a movement of faith, a movement of trust, of belief, of an abiding hope in things that are sometimes yet unseen. But there are places and there are moments in which God's goodness, though invisible in its essence, is made visible and manifest to our eyes. Places and moments that make trust in God not a blind leap, but a palpable, steady step forward. And for me personally, the following are some of those examples of those places and those moments where I can see God's goodness. I foremost see God's goodness in family and in relationships. I see God's goodness in the intimacy of marriage, in the moments of warmth and embrace, in the moments of forgiveness and understanding, in the moments of new birth and laughter, the moments of consolation and grief. And the same goes for friendships, the long conversations, the shared sense of humor, the shared interests and activities. These are places in which I see the light of God's goodness shining through in creation. I see God's goodness in the constructive activities of everyday life and in work and its fruits, in the preparation and in the sharing of meals together, in the taste of delicious food and the refreshment of drink. I don't think it's an accident that God's goodness is compared to life-giving waters in the Psalms, to a rich feast, and that following God is compared to the sweetness of the honeycomb, and that we are invited in Psalm 34 to, quote, taste and see that the Lord is good. I feel God's goodness coursing through my bones as well in things like music. I feel the grip of God when enraptured by a good story, whether read or watched. I'm often overtaken in wonder at God through science and the understanding of the vastness and intricacies of the planet on which we live, as well as the vast universe of which we are a part. I see the goodness of God in the calls and the work for liberation for all people so that they can flourish as God intends so that they can thrive and develop and practice their God-given gifts. I see the goodness of God and the progress we have made as a people across centuries toward that end, that all may thrive. I see God's goodness in the work that we have ahead to continue growing and serving as God's stewards and as ambassadors of God's kingdom. I see God's goodness in the personal relationship with God that flows from times especially of prayer and meditation whether on the book of scripture or the book of creation. I feel God in the sense of peace and perspective, clarity and invigoration, confession and repentance, lament and petition that come through those moments. I see God especially in our time together on these Sunday mornings, assembled as the people of God, and assembled not because we are well, but because God came in Christ to make us well, to knit us together as God's people. And I see God's goodness above all in the mercy of God poured out upon us by coming incarnate as Christ to rescue us from the ways we strayed from the life-giving purposes of God, the ways we've forsaken the life-giving waters of our Lord, the ways that we've loved and formed communities around idols rather than God, the ways that we've lifted up and worshipped some aspect of God's good creation as though it were God, instead of understanding it as a gift of God to be shared in abundance with one another. When Jesus was talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, 
he proclaimed to her, the hour is coming, and now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That theme from Christ was picked up in 1 John chapter 3 when it proclaimed, quote, We know love by this, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and in action. And further on in that letter, God's love was revealed to among us, or was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. Brothers and sisters, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us as one of the most powerful and palpable ways in which we can see God and rejoice in gladness at God's goodness. In his message to the Samaritan woman, Christ was emphasizing that the worship of God is not confined to one place, one sanctuary, one location. While those places and any place of worship can be powerful markers, powerful places to symbolize and express God's rule and goodness. Worship is something that is fundamentally, fundamentally about the body of Christ, the body of God's people coming together as one to publicly proclaim God's goodness. In the words of Paul in his letter to the Romans, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. As Paul says, this is our spiritual worship. To God be the glory, brothers and sisters, forever and ever.